my name's Larissa Brown and welcome to uh, the Social Institutions of Connection. Congratulations on picking the best of the three uh, breakout workshops. We have three very interesting presentations coming up for you. So firstly, Joan Staples will be talking about NGOs, participation and reclaiming democracy from neoliberalism. Then we'll hear from Mike Dowson around honeybee democracy. And lastly, we'll be hearing from Sharon France, who'll be talking about graphic design, the creative industries and sustainability uh, and community participation. Um, so we'll have some, uh, we'll have three short presentations and then we should have a, a good amount of time for some discussion and bring the threads of those presentations together. So um, without further ado, I will welcome Joan Staples uh, to talk about overthrowing neoliberalism. <laughs> you give her a hand. Well, actually, I wasn't going to talk about that first off. I thought we... <laughs> if you've come for that, I'm really happy to talk about that because that's what I seem to talk about all the time. But um, I wanted just to set the scene for the the topic here, which is the social um, institutions of connection. And um, I have fallen into the role of talking about the importance of civil society, of community organisations, of NGOs in our democracy. So that's sort of what I could more adequately talk about. So I thought I'd just run through sort of some of the conceptual ideas as how we think about that, because I think it is one of the most important areas, I think it is the most important area of our social connection. Um, now, many of you will be familiar with this diagram, um, which is often used to describe three, that put our um, society into three different circles. We've got the state, government, we've got the market, business, corporations, and we've got community. And within, clearly there are overlaps, that everything's not nice and even, and ideally they should equally been balanced like this, and that's not always the case, certainly under neoliberalism. It's been used to talk about how our democracy works. Um, now, I want, I want to talk a little bit about the importance of that particular sector, but first I'll just... Um, I wanted to actually also show you how the Productivity Commission of all people, one of the most um, dry of our economic forums, um, tried to conceptualise this area. Um, they actually put this diagram up when they did a study of this sector, this third sector, and that is also a name that's often given. You know, we have names like non-profit, non-government, which is saying what it's not, but they also have positive names like community, third sector, because obviously there's three triangles. So they were trying to identify it, and actually they were trying to identify it to say how much, how economically valuable it was. Um, which is, I think, that's an, not the important thing. The important thing to me is the social connection, the value that this sector brings to creating a cohesive and dynamic and healthy community. But the way they... I think it's also look, worth looking at because that sector is very large and it is these, these, the complexity of all these groups that I think gives us our social connections. They've divided up into... Those serving the community and those serving members and those which are non-market and market. This is where I'm going to talk in a little... I'm going to pull this apart a little bit further and talk a little bit more about the non-market serving the community. This is what we, we tend to focus on. This is certainly where my research is focused. This is where um, 
certainly environment organisations, those sort of advocacy organisations fit. Um, but also serving the um, community are some social enterprises, some hospitals and schools. Um, and down here, I think very importantly, amateur clubs, self-help groups, arts councils, those, those creative community building um, glue that often holds us together. Uh, trading cooperatives and financials, mutuals are, are also part of the market. And going across the top are professional associations, you know, doctors, the Minerals Council, those type of organisations. Um, as a totality, um, this is what we're all, all of us are going to talk about today in different, different aspects of how that can work, how, how that can be um, a healthy and, dyna and dynamic way that our social institutions <coughs> do connect us. But let me just first um, zero in on this section up here, because this is where I have my expertise, and I think I, if you'll just uh, bear with me, this is where I'd like to talk a little bit about what is the value of those organisations which people join, firstly, people, some of them people join in order to have a say within our democracy, because we don't have direct democracy, we have a representative democracy, and we, there is a model of um, our democracy which existed very, very strongly for many, many, many decades, right up until the Howard government, which was that the, um, the sphere, we had a public sphere in which many voices debated public policy. The industry would put in ideas, the public would put in ideas, think tanks would put in ideas, university people would put in ideas, and the public debates which occurred around policy were intended to bring out better policy. Now, that's, that's very idealistic, but theoretically, that's the sort of model that we had. What came along with the Howard government very, very strongly was that a different model was proposed. It's a model associated with neoliberalism. It's called public choice theory. It actually says that this group of NGOs interfere with the market. Now, I can go into that in more detail later, but what I would like to talk about is what I see as the value of these organisations in terms of their development of alternative policies, um, what, what they actually do. And I've actually listed about nine different reasons, nine different attributes that are the, um, the advantages of us having um, non-government organisations. For a start, they are vital to good policy making. Um, and it needn't be an adversarial relationship. You know, during the Hawke era, for example, I was on a number of advisory committees, committees the National Women's Consultative Council and the, um, uh, the equivalent for the consumers, in which many people from different organisations were brought together and deliberately asked by government to come up with policy and help refine policy. So it can be a very healthy way in which government can actually use the non-government to actually develop better policies. And certainly the Greens understand how to do this. I think most importantly for that, that sector here is that it can think long term. Inevitably, politicians tend to think to the next election. Um, corporations have a legal responsibility to, to their bottom line, to shareholders. It's only this sector that can really look to the long term. And of course, the classic issue is climate change. This, we need be, to be able to think to the long term. And that's what this sector has obviously done. Clearly, it's a balance, having, that, having a, a good balance there to the, the voice of uh, interested financial players is very important. There's also an accountability function. 
NGOs can, can talk about the impact of government and business policies, the impact of lack of policy, failure to implement promises, uh, unintended cons- uh, the unintended consequences of policies, and uh, the existence of unethical and corrupt behaviour. Uh, they show how much they can help indicate how much public support there is for an I- issue or not, um, and of course they're better than individuals. You know, many many hands make light work, work and um, two heads are better than one. So coming together, NGOs can actually develop better ideas in a, in, as an NGO rather than individuals trying to do it by themselves. They are also a, a voice for the marginalised and disaffected and, and disadvantaged individuals and groups. They're very important where you have regional groups can actually can put forward what is specific to their particular region and special interest groups can speak up for what is, is specific smaller interest, interests that they might hold. Um, and I think most importantly it's the flexibility of the sector. The, the fact that um, people get to, can get together and sort of over a cup of tea say, let's do so-and-so. And like, you don't have to get incorporated and do all that sort of stuff, but groups of people in civil society could just come together immediately to react. Whereas the government, um, business, have all these processes they need to go through. And that flexibility is also, um, I think, part shows that the, the dynamic and the... Um, a very, very valuable role that that particular sector plays. Okay, so I will say a little bit more about um, the uh, effects of neoliberalism. I've sort of I've touched on that, the fact that we had a model, a pluralist model in which many voices were expected to speak in our society. We began to see, um, when you look at the language of John Howard, I tried to analyse the language that he put in a number of speeches just prior to the 1996 election. And clearly, his language and the words he was using echoed what some of the theoretical um, economists were talking about, about civil society. The way in which he talked about governing for the mainstream and that we were not representative. Uh, it was very much an emphasis on the only people who were representative were elected representatives, not NGOs who, as I said, were described as interfering with the market. And this, the whole precept of what we've been coping with ever since and what's happening right now of the tax on NGO is based on that philosophical idea that we interfere. But I also have to step back and come back into the real world because neoliberalism, as it has been practised, you know, privatisation, deregulation, smaller government, trickle-down economics, all of those things which we have experienced for the last... 30, 35 years, were also, as they came into practice from the 1940s when the Chicago School and the various internet, various um, think tanks were established to promote those ideas, like the American Enterprise Institute in the US and our own IPA here in Australia, which was formed at the same time. Um, At that time, the business looked at these theories and thought, wow, this looks really good. And it so what we found was that those think tanks were infiltrated by the big corporations who saw neoliberalism being a good way to go. And so what we've been experiencing also at the same time is that there has been a takeover of our governments by corporations. The influence that we experience from corporations and the closeness and the revolving door uh, that takes place is all-pervasive. And I could talk a little bit later on, perhaps in question time, about how... Um, that revolving door began here in Australia, as, um, particularly in relation to the mining industry. But I must be about 10 minutes, so I'll just leave it at that. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Our next speaker is Mike Dowson. Good morning, everyone. My name's Mike Dowson. I'm here today with my colleague, Kevin Cox, and we're wearing our technology hats. Sometimes we wear other hats. But today, I'm going to invite you to shift the thinking a little bit away from the why and the what, to use Simon Sinek's start with why theory, and consider a little bit more about the how. And we're going to use as our departure point some research and thinking around um, enablement for the kind of thing that you heard Joan talking about before, which is developing a more participatory uh, democratic process, more involvement from more people in the kind of decision-making that affects us. The sources for this presentation are two. One is... Um, quite a quite well-known book now called Honeybee Democracy by a um, rich researcher and scientist called uh, Thomas Seeley. And this is uh, uh, the result of a, a long process of observing and learning about how honeybees organise uh, rather uh, complex activities en masse. And in particular, uh, one of the very challenging things that honeybee colonies have to do, which is move. And the second source that we're looking at is uh, another book called uh, Algorithms to Live By by uh, Brian Christian and Tom Griffiths. And this is really uh, looking at what we've learned through trying to make computers do things. One of the things we've had to do to make computers do things well is to understand how logical processes unfold and uh, everybody, I think, is familiar with the term algorithm to describe a fairly complex logical process and how we start from a set of factors uh, and uh, maybe even some unknowns and arrive through a relatively automated process at, at some decision or choice, you know, a uh, practical application. Uh, in the process of developing those, uh, that technology and those applications, we've learned a lot about how it is that we actually get to decisions. So looking at honeybees, first of all, this research comes from uh, looking at bee colonies that migrate on an annual basis. So once a year, the, the colony has to up and move somewhere else. So how do they do that? If you've got thousands of bees in a colony and they have to uh, decide on a new location, there used to be a naive assumption that the way that bees do things is that you have somebody in charge, and usually it was the queen who was proposed to be the authority. And uh, supposedly everybody else was just running around serving the queen, and the queen was kind of directing activities. And it didn't take long for researchers to understand that that, in fact, wasn't what was going on at all. That the queen has a very specific function in the hive, which is uh, associated with reproducing the colony. And uh, that uh, the decision-making that was going on was a collective one. So this is very interesting for us as uh, human beings, one of the most highly social animals on Earth, to uh, observe and try and understand, okay, how do these, these uh, how does a, an organism as relatively simple as a bee uh, make these very important decisions on a regular basis collectively? So it turns out that um, it, one of the, the, the main factors is that uh, bees are very much alike. And you could say the same thing about human beings, actually. We're not all that different. The research into what human beings need and what's good for our happiness and well-being doesn't vary that much. 
between us. There are ways in which we're, we're all very similar. And the same is true of bees. And what this means is that bees can trust the information that the other bees pass on to them. If you think about the way that human societies work, there's an awful lot of trust lubricating the machinery of our societies as well. In the news, we tend to focus on the things that are going wrong, but actually when you walk out that door, uh, you're going to enter into a, uh, a world where you can pretty much guarantee that certain things are going to happen and, and uh, if you get into trouble, you'll be able to call on the resources of strangers, people that you don't even know, to assist you. So there's, there's a very high level of trust in honeybees as there is in, in human beings, which enables the uh, reliability of, of information. So the method is that the colony sends out a small number of experts and they're the ones who've been foraging for honey. So we know that they're good at what they do and they're successful at doing it. So we send those bees out and they come back and tell the others about possible hive sites. So a number of bees looking at a number of possible hive sites. And then the forager bees look to see what the other foragers have found. If a particular site looks better than the ones that they've found, they have a look themselves and come back and tell the others of their assessment. So you've got a process of, you know, first of all, a reconnoiter to come up with some alternatives, and then you've got some uh, communication between the members of the hive about what, what they've found, and then some checking on the uh, most likely candidates for the hive site, and then they basically do this until there's a working consensus among the foraging bee, the forager bees that one of the sites is the best. So the number of bees that agree on the site depends on elapsed time. And in this particular case, time is limited. So if they don't decide within a relatively short time, and I think it's a couple of days, uh, the hive is at risk. They may die. So once, have, once enough have agreed... Uh, they reach a kind of trigger point, if you like, of consensus. It doesn't have to be absolute, but once there's enough consensus, it seems to motivate the, the colony to then move to the new hive site. So that's the first set of research that uh, we're drawing on in this analysis. The second one is a principle that's referred to as computational kindness. And this comes from uh, Christian and Griffith's research. So what they have observed is that coming to consensus doesn't have to involve uh, an enormously complex argumentative process of everybody kind of uh, tussling with one another until, uh, until somehow somebody's able to persuade everybody else. Uh, and the example they use is like deciding on a time for a meeting. And if you've ever done a, a, a doodle poll online, you'll know how this works. So one person proposes a, a solution. Others agree if they can. If they can't, they offer an alternative. And when enough agree on the solution, it's applied. If, you, if you've done a doodle poll, you'll know this actually works quite well and it's relatively efficient, so you don't have to spend a lot of time arriving at a, at a, at a decision. So why is that? Well, these guys reckon the reason is because it reduces the computational complexity because the parties no longer need to worry about other people's preferences. Unfortunately, the remainder of this session, Social Institutions of Connection, was not recorded. Apologies to Mike Dowson and to Kevin Cox for the incomplete presentation and to Sue Lewis who missed out altogether.